the observability migration comes from how on earth do I as an SRE figure out what the heck's going on, right? If I get a page that my service is failing, well, is that my service's fault? Is that an upstream started sending us too much traffic? Is that a downstream fell over? And a lot of times you, you can't internalize all that state, even mm. if you are responsible for a whole part of the site, like the external dependencies could be things that you've never even heard of, right? And so observability yeah. really helps you figure out where is the problem. And it's like solving the murder mystery of what, you know, who <laughs> shot this, who shot our experience in the foot. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk about all things software and technology. Today, we have a very special episode. It is sponsored by the fine folks at Splunk, and we are going to be talking about observability and action. We're going to be talking about open telemetry, and we're going to be talking about how all these skills can come in handy, even if you're not directly focused on observability, but maybe as part of your career as we move into this brave new world of microservices and containers and just generally uh, more complex implementations and architecture, even for some relatively small projects. I am joined as always, or as I often am, by my co-host Ryan Donovan. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey, Ben. Uh, what's happening? Today we have as our guest from Splunk, Greg Leffler, who is an observability practitioner, a practitioner of the art of observability. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. I'm glad to be here. So yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background and how did you end up at Splunk? Yeah, it's an interesting story. Uh, I have a lot of traditional SRE systems administration and NOC experience. NOC is the uh, Network Operations Center. I've always really been intrigued by complicated systems and difficult problems. And uh, observability is one of those things that, you know, there's infinite complexity in there. And so that's what drew me to Splunk. That's what drew me to this role. So I'm excited to talk more about observability and why you need it and sort of the benefits to your career. Like it definitely is, is not a flash in the pan. Tell us a little bit about, yeah, how you would define observability and where it sits, yeah, in relation to maybe something more like a traditional SRE role. It's interesting. There's a lot of people that want to own the definition of observability. And, you know, of course, uh, Splunk has our own definition as well. The definition that I like to use is that it's really the ability to answer unexpected questions about a system, we'll say, right? Uh, traditionally, that's going to be an application or something like that. But monitoring is what people think of when they think of looking at how a system performs, which is, I know this thing might break, so I monitor it. And then when it breaks, I do something. And observability is sort of extending that monitoring approach to every piece of data you can collect. So you're going to try to instrument everything coming into your platform, uh, your end users, your applications, your infrastructure, synthetics, you know, any sort of thing that might conceivably be useful, you're going to instrument. And observability is the ability to turn that data into some sort of meaningful insight or some sort of next step. The real differentiator, I would say, is that with an observability approach, you can solve problems you didn't know you were going to have. Uh, as you said in the intro, like the infrastructure is so complicated now that anything, even a very simple thing, is going to have a lot of services. There's going to be a lot of ways data flows. You could have stuff on premises, stuff in multiple clouds. Like being able to figure out what's going on is, is huge. And that to me is really what observability is about, right? It's answering what the heck is happening with everything. 
Yeah, I mean, Greg, just tell me if I, you know, as a lay person who doesn't write much code, the way I think of the difference maybe is like SRE, you know, those are the people you call when something's gone wrong. They have a run book and they, you know, know how to fix it. Observability is more the art of we're not really sure what went wrong or, you know, we have to locate sort of the problem so that we can fix it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, SREs, good SREs, of course, are very focused on uptime and customer experience, but the approach you use for that is evolving right into this observability approach. Yeah. I mean, these systems put out so much data, trying to keep an eye on it is so intense these days. So I think, like you said, a lot of people are trying to own observability. Can you kind of give us a story of observability in action, kind of give a sense of what it what it looks like in practice? Yeah. What really is Interesting is that when you think of how we're starting to move software to the cloud, and everybody's doing this, right? Moving stuff to the cloud can be expensive. And some of the benefits you claim to get from the cloud are, you know, oh, you can automatically scale and you can handle arbitrary traffic volumes and you can handle availability zones falling over. And all of that stuff is technically true, but you do need to do some work for your application and you need to be able to see what's going on and how it's working. So one of the success stories we have at Splunk is a company called Quantometric, which is a continuous product design uh, company. It's basically a platform for other websites to make changes in real time and to see what effect that has on customer spending. So if Quantometric's mm. platform is broken, all of their customers are unhappy and you know it's a big pain. So the mm. big advantage they got from adopting observability was cloud resource utilization, right? So they like I think a lot of people are just like, let's throw stuff in the cloud and let the cloud take care of it, which is fine right. until you start to get the bill. <laughs> um, and one of the things that Quantumetric noticed was, you know, they were spending $80,000 more than they needed to be based off of, you know, our out of the box indicators of, hey, your capacity isn't planned as well as it could be, right? With most mm -hmm. of the cloud providers, reserved instances are a lot cheaper than spots. But if you don't know, to ask that question of, hey, is there a cheaper way we could be doing this? Like, sure, you know, cloud providers will happily sell you their most expensive product on demand because, sure. you know, you didn't ask them for anything cheaper. So that's one thing that really helps with observability is just knowing what are some questions we can ask, right? And so a good platform will give you out of the box, what am I spending in the cloud? Or what are my read and use metrics look like? You know, those kind of things. A lot of observability comes from, you know, it's no longer one application running on one machine. You no longer have this one machine to be like, this is my resource spend, right? Everything's moving in the cloud, it's microservices, it's containers, and you can spin up containers like on the fly. So talk about uh, a little bit like how observability is evolving with these complexities. Yeah, the whole the whole SRE world has sort of been evolving from the pets versus cattle scenario. The pets versus cattle metaphor uh, applies to servers. When you treat your servers like pets, Everyone is a special, you want them to live forever. Uh, when you treat them like cattle, it's the herd that's the resource. So you have no problem killing off a server when you need to. When I first started, I was responsible for a server called PHX IMF1, and that was my baby, and that's what I had to deal with. And, and you know, <laughs> as, as part of my career happened, I moved to LinkedIn, where I was suddenly responsible for about 800 servers uh, to start with, and then, you know, a lot more than that on the way out. So <laughs> yeah, you definitely can't you cannot keep track of everything that's going on. So this cloud migration, microservice migration is to get the benefits of moving to the cloud, you kind of have to adopt this model, right? Like you're moving things into a container system. Well, we can say Docker or Podman or whatever you're using, right? But you're moving into containers, you're splitting your app up into a bunch of microservices, and you're doing this because 
hey, I can only deploy micros for this one microservice that I need to scale unexpectedly, whereas my big data thing can be an Excel that you know I don't need to worry about dynamically scaling, that kind of thing. So as infrastructure becomes more complicated, if you look at, say, the Amazon homepage, there was a talk at an SREcon a few years ago where they showed the Amazon webpage calls something like 40 microservices just to render the stuff that's on the page. And then each of those services could call other services. And wow. you know, the, the whole thing gets really complicated. So the observability migration comes from how on earth do I as an SRE figure out what the heck's going on, right? If I get a page that my service is failing, well, is that my service's fault? Is that an upstream started sending us too much traffic? Is that a downstream fell over? And a lot of times you, you can't internalize all that state, even mm. if you are responsible for a whole part of the site, like the external dependencies could be things that you've never even heard of, right? And so right. observability really helps you figure out where is the problem. And it's like solving the murder mystery of what, you know, who <laughs> shot this, who shot our experience in the foot. That's really what I think it's right. for because of all of the new changes and how things are deployed. So we had a colleague of yours, Spiros Anthos, on the podcast pretty recently. And I want to get into something he talked about, which was open telemetry. But before we do that, I just wanted to ask, you know, you're sort of saying you're the detective here trying to figure out what's going on. You might be upstream, might be downstream. What's causing these issues? And he mentioned sort of three things, the logs, the traces, and the metrics that were kind of the the core tools that you would use to figure that kind of stuff out. So can you define just sort of generally for people what those are and how they play a role in this? And then maybe we could talk a little bit about open telemetry and where it factors into this conversation. You know, we are trying to uh, to add a fourth one to that to that column now. We're adding events <laughs> um, okay. because metrics, logs, and traces, you know, is a very traditional definition of observability from an application mm. perspective, right? So a metric is a timestamp and a number, like how much memory are we using, how much disk space are we using. A trace is a collection of data points about a particular request. So if you, as a user, go to the website and click on a link. Right, like every request that's made to fulfill that is going to be associated with a trace ID, and you can use that to mm -hmm. figure out like what path did that request take through my labyrinth. And then logs are sort of the why answers, right? So the logs tell you what caused this failure or what was the reason this was broken. So in a traditional observability world, you need to have all three of those things. A lot of vendors are better at one or two than all three. Um, the ability to sort of use the trace data is more advanced, I think, for a lot of people in an observability context. And then one of the things that we, we wanted to add to that definition was events. So things like uh, synthetic testing or real user monitoring events, which you can sort of shoehorn them in as metrics. You know, mm -hmm. like this test happened and so this was the result. That's kind of a metric. But there mm -hmm. are some things that are more important if they're associated with a real user, right? Like if a real user is trying to load your web page and you are self-hosting Angular, right, and your hosting goes down and you don't have monitoring for that, that page is going to look like crap for your user because half your JavaScript framework didn't load. So the event of this user tried to access this page and there was a failure on the browser is an event, right? That's not really a metric. That's not really a log. It's, it's kind of this new category. So we're sort of figuring out how to say that, but that's a, a new thing that's going to happen. As far as open telemetry goes, this industry is busy. Uh, it's packed. There's a lot of people that are doing this and uh, a lot of them want you to use their infrastructure to instrument your applications and to get data out mm -hmm. of your infrastructure. And 
we used to be like that too. I'm sure, you know, Splunk, uh, Splunk Core has a lot of, of things that are, are not fully open. But when we switched to right. talking about observability, what we really wanted to do was to provide the industry standard for getting metrics, traces, and logs into an observability platform. So we were built from the ground up to use OpenTelemetry as our native data format. We employ you know, two of the biggest people in the OpenTelemetry world. We're the biggest contributor, you know, all that stuff about we are really in on OpenTelemetry. But why that's important is because you really have a lot of independence with your data with OpenTelemetry. And you're going to have to do the work, but you only have to do it once if you do it with OpenTelemetry, right? It's not a Roach Motel. Your data can check in and we can check it out too. You can take it to whatever platform you want. And a lot of other observability platforms don't have that flexibility. You know, they really do try to force you into using their data formats and their methods. And then when you try to change, you discover, oh, now I have to redo all this work. I guess, you know, one of the questions I had there was, I know people feel the same way often about cloud vendors. And so they will sort of work with multiple vendors at the same time and sort of try to divide and conquer and split things up a little bit. Is that possible also in the observability world, especially if, as you said, you know, you kind of only need to architect it once and then your data can go wherever it fits best or wherever you're getting, you know, the best service. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the biggest benefits of open telemetry is that you can write the same data in multiple streams, right? So you can say, hey, we'll send this to Splunk and we'll also send it to an in-house thing we're developing and we'll also send it to Datadog or Apti or somebody else, right? Like, you know, everybody has gotten to the point where they are willing to consume open telemetry, but um, <laughs> not everybody is at the point where they're willing to emit open telemetry, right? So, uh, you know, that's definitely something possible and it's a big advantage of using open telemetry is you, re you retain that flexibility. I think it's uh, sometimes a tough business model to argue. We're going to stop this vendor lock-in. We're going to let you use other products. Yeah, the, the luck that we had was that, you know, several of the people that came to Splunk through the various acquisitions we made to build out the observability products were very opinionated about the need for this to be open and did the work to convince everyone at Splunk, yeah, open is better. And it, it's better for us. It's better for our customers. It's better for everyone because... You know, being locked in doesn't help get observability out there in the world, right? It doesn't make people, if you're locked into one vendor and you decide to break up with that vendor for whatever reason, then you're going to let the product fall by the wayside. You're not going to get those benefits, right? And everybody right. benefits from better performing applications. Like, you know, even as users, right, you benefit yeah. from the application being better. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Kind of going back to what Ryan said, to be a agile and successful business in this day and age, you have to find a way to make open source work with your business model, because otherwise you're not going to be offering customers the flexibility and you're not going to get that sort of scale and pace of innovation that you get when people, you know, from all over the place can contribute to the project. So I think that makes a lot of sense. It's it's in the business best, you know, sort of self-interest if, if they can figure out the math to go in that direction for sure. I think uh, everybody loves the, the story on the ground. Can we talk about some open telemetry in action? I know when I've used Splunk, I think we had a different logging solution. So I'm curious about how the open telemetry works, works in the, the full kind of metrics, logs, and traces. It's, it's one thing that we are a little bit outside the lines on is that open telemetry logging is still in, I think, late beta, we're saying, but um, it's, a, it's a similar, it's, it's going to be similar to metrics and traces, which are pretty mature on most of the supported platforms, right? If you are like most 
large companies and your enterprise applications are written in Java, which you know most of them are, instrumenting mm-hmm. those for metrics and traces is super straightforward, right? We give you a jar, you throw it into your app's class path, you change the launch command to reference that jar, and that's it, you're done, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to go into your code and manually say, hey, I care about this, right? Like we can figure out what's going on. And then the open telemetry platform is super flexible so that later on, as part of the data pipeline, like you can say, okay, I actually don't care about this metric. I don't care about these trace events. And the other advantage is that now there's sort of this common vocabulary among everybody in observability about what you call things and how you refer to them. So when we do have logs at 1.0, right, like what you put in the logs and what that ends up showing up as in your observability system will be consistent, right? So you won't have to worry about, even if you switch to a different vendor or even if you roll your own, like you'll still be able to correlate things because there's now a standard where we've all agreed like, hey, this is the way you should say this happened. And that makes a huge difference for logs, right? Like if you're troubleshooting something that you didn't write or aren't familiar with, like figuring out how the person who wrote it is specifically putting the stuff in the log can sometimes be a big chunk of the troubleshooting time. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the standard language makes a big difference. Everybody logs differently. We had a post from uh, somebody else in the observability sphere a while back, Charity Majors. And this observability is becoming a big field of its own, right? Do you think it's it's becoming a, a separate kind of professional class? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Because I remember when we had Spiros on, he was saying one thing that interested him was seeing sort of the proliferation of online certificates for this. So, you know, mm. get certified and this kind of observability, and you can then, you know, walk right up and, and find yourself in a position to fill demand for a lot of, you know, pretty high paying jobs. So yeah, talk to us a little bit about sort of like how it's evolving as its own professional class, maybe sort of the way DevOps is, you know, these days. And then maybe I think as you wrote for the blog, in what ways learning these skills can be helpful, even if you don't decide to, I guess, focus full-time on observability. Yeah, I think it's uh, one of the things that is is amusing to me about this whole industry is that it's very cyclical in nature, right? And, you know, we've gone from apps run on mainframes to apps are super distributed to, oh, now we have this three-tier infrastructure to now they're super distributed again, right? So I, I think... I don't want to pontificate too much on how long observability will be like a unique thing, but right now it is. And even if it doesn't remain a unique career forever, like troubleshooting, SRE, problem solving is going to be. And the skills that you develop when you learn about observability are what are going to make the difference between you and other people trying to get into the software world in general, right? Not even just operations. You know, if you aren't full-time working on observability, which even most SREs probably aren't, right? Like you work on observability to the extent that you need it to solve a problem or to help guide your architecture design. But like, you know, as an SRE, you're writing tools, you're planning, you're, you know, talking to your engineers about the correct data models, you know, things like that. So it's not necessarily anyone's completely full-time focus, but knowing how to do troubleshooting well uh, is always going to be part of any software job, right? No matter whether you're writing code or you're deploying it or you're the SRE, you're always going to have to fix problems. And you know, observability is is really viewed best as a, the evolution of monitoring, right? We're never going to get rid of monitoring as you are doing observability, you have to monitor things, right? Like we say instrument because I guess we didn't want to say monitor, but like that's the same thing. You're doing you're doing the same concept, right? So it's really like sharpening your sword for troubleshooting is the biggest thing you're going to get out of setting up observability is like you're getting better at troubleshooting, at finding those connections between things, at being able to do that murder mystery investigation of what caused this mm-hmm. thing to go on. One of the other things is just 
Open telemetry is is cool and it's new, and observability is sort of still cool and new. And a lot of the you know competing platforms to Splunk are trying to catch up with open telemetry, but this whole concept of distributed tracing, of APM, of observability overall is still pretty new uh, to the to the rest of the world. So even if you aren't doing it as a full-time role, you get to learn a new thing and play with new technology, which I had someone object to me using the word play when we're talking about like these critical business applications. And okay, that's fair. But you know, on the other hand, as somebody that does this stuff, like part of it is playing with it, right? You get to see how it works and using it to solve a problem like you're still solving the problem and having fun is, is allowed, right? Like, so there's no reason not to. So diving into something that is new and that people haven't played out yet is going to help you be more interested in it. You can establish a niche of expertise, right? People can come say, you know, Hey, so-and-so what is distributed tracing? What does that mean? How do we use it? What do we do? What do we do with it? Because, you know, if I'm doing my job and everybody at Splunk and all of our competitors are doing our jobs, next year you're going to say, oh, I need distributed tracing. And being ahead of the curve to say like, yeah, you know, we do need this. It's something that's going to help. And another thing that I think really gets overlooked a lot is the observability world sort of did come from the cloud native world as well. So. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, with the cloud native, you don't have the the server in front of you. You don't have the traditional like file structure running on VMs and hypervisors and such. And so you need a different way to see what's going on, not on the metal, but closer to the metal, right? A lot of the concepts around observability, a lot of how data is structured, like both in the application perspective and like in your own head, is based on the modern container microservice cloud model. So if you aren't there yet, or if you aren't as fully along there as you want to be, this is a great way to help you get ahead of that, right? Like you're being able to pick up on how can we better get our apps in the cloud efficiently and effectively uh, and to make sure we're getting that value, right? And even the cloud is like, you know, we talk about the cloud migration as a foregone conclusion, but there's mm-hmm. stuff beyond the cloud too, right? Like if you talk about serverless, if you talk about lambdas, you know, those sort of things, like, yeah, that all kind of falls in the cloud umbrella because you're buying it from somebody else, but it's very different than the traditional cloud models where you have a VM or where you even have containers, right? So the observability, the documentation and sort of the general approach that places have to talking about observability explains some of those concepts and relies on you knowing those concepts. Yeah, I guess I've never done this on a sponsored podcast before, but you want me to tell you to take your job more seriously, right? Like, don't play around so much, Greg. It's not, <laughs> this is not fun and games here. We have to, yeah. serious business processes no. are relying on this. Stuff. I mean, I understand it. I've I've definitely felt the thrill of tracking down a you know 500 server error through Splunk. Do you have a favorite murder mystery that you solved? You know, if you're sitting, <laughs> you're sitting a bar with a few people who work in this area, or, you know, if you're, yeah, if you're talking to someone who's considering going into it or is coming in new at the company, like, do you have a few, a few stories you'd like to tell about how you solve these kind of mysteries? I think the the hallmark of, of a good operations person is that they have a good war story. So, you know, of course, <laughs> <laughs> it was actually one of the questions that we asked at LinkedIn when we hired SREs was, you know, to tell us about mm-hmm. the biggest thing you screwed up because it really tells you a lot about a person. Right. And uh, right. this one, the one that I'll tell you wasn't my fault, but uh, it was a very <laughs> interesting story anyway. But the, yeah. the deal was, you know, we had a service that was failing and nobody could really tell why. Right. We figured out that there was this really sharp drop-off in traffic. That was the alert we got. was like, hey, this normally gets 
a thousand queries a second and now it's getting three so something is wrong and we pull up the logs and we see no space left on device you're like, okay, well, that's pretty easy. Let's just go delete some files and figure out what's going on. So the problem is you run DF and you see that there's plenty of space. They're not out of space at all, right? Like there's there's so much space that it was ridiculous, right? And um, so it was very confusing, right? You're trying to figure out why would it say that we don't have any space when we have plenty of space? And I was still relatively green in my career. And those of you listening who are not probably already know the answer to this, but we had released a new version of the code for this service. And part of that code was that every time a transaction happened, it dropped a file on the disk. These files were only a couple of bytes, right? Because it was some sort of transactional data that we wanted to store. But um, there is a limit to how many files you can put on a disk. <laughs> um, and, and when you get to that point, the error message the Linux kernel helpfully gives you is no space left on device, even though that's not actually what's wrong. It's definitely not something we were monitoring, right? Because I don't think anybody would have ever expected we would write right. a few billion files to the disk. And it happened over a couple of days or, you know, but I don't think anybody ever thought that would happen. So that's definitely one that's like, it was a weird problem. The fix was unintuitive. It was a lot of late night stack overflow searching for why does it say the disk is full when the disk isn't full? I'm glad we could help. I'm glad we could help. Putting that great war story in my back pocket for another day, let me ask you as we uh, sort of wrap up here, people who are listening to this, who are interested, what are some recommendations of you know places to go try this stuff out or learn it? As you said, you know part of the fun is playing with it. So what would you recommend people interested in observability or open telemetry check out? Well, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't say go to Splunk.com and check out the observability demo. Go to your preferred vendor and check out their observability platform. Basically, everybody has either a free tier or a demo. You know, the kind of folks that listen to this podcast are going to want to see it for themselves. So try that, right? If you don't have an infrastructure at home, if you don't have a home lab, you know, like what are you doing here? No, I'm kidding. Uh, but, you know, if you don't have a home lab, if you don't have infrastructure at home, you could set up Minikube. You could do things to like create your own little tiny universe and just experience mm. what you get out of an observability platform, right? That's one thing that I, I always recommend first is you know the most from something you've used yourself. But of course, there's a lot of resources. You know, everybody's got YouTube videos talking about observability, including us and the CNCF and, uh, you know, all of our competitors as well, right? We produce lots of stuff on how to do observability, you know, the right way. And of course, the project website for OpenTelemetry is opentelemetry.io is a great place to learn about OpenTelemetry specifically. Even though Splunk is a huge booster for OpenTelemetry, it is not a Splunk project, right? It is a CNCF project. And so they are responsible for that website and for the documentation and stuff. If you aren't super sure about like the whole observability universe and like what sort of things should you care right. about and what sort of metrics matter, I would recommend Googling the acronyms USE and RED, so USE and RED, which are very, very common ways to evaluate the health of services. Google probably will try to claim ownership of those because they documented them in their book, right? <laughs> so um, you know, they're very, very common things that I would encourage you to look at if you're trying to figure out like what are things I need to care about. Those are the, the most common key metrics are gonna be summed up in USE and RED. All right. Well, I certainly learned a lot. And I, I do think this is a fascinating topic, especially because as Ryan and I do the podcast and the blog, we are getting an ever-growing number of pitches and guests who are living in this cloud-native world, right. in this world of microservices and containers. And as you said, 
almost staying ahead of the curve is learning how to do the troubleshooting, right? That will like kind of naturally lead you in the direction to be learning the things that are coming around the corner. So that's a cool way of thinking about it. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. You can always email us podcast at stackoverflow.com. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog and the newsletter here at Stack Overflow. I'm a ghost on Twitter at rthordonovan. If you want to send us a great blog pitch, you can reach me at pitches at stackoverflow.com. Greg, tell the people who you are, where you can be found on the internet if you want to be found, and uh, yeah, where they should go to check out a little bit more about Splunk and open telemetry. Yes, so I'm Greg Leffler. I am an observability practitioner at Splunk. I do not have a Twitter presence, but you can follow me on LinkedIn. Probably the only Greg Leffler that has observability next to his name, so that's how you'll be able to find me. If you want to learn more about Splunk observability, we would encourage you to check us out. Splunk.com slash the letter O, the number one, the number one, the letter Y. So it's, you know, a clever abbreviation, you know, like we use for accessibility and internationalization. Uh, We use OLLI, O-11-Y. So check us out there. And it was great to be here and to talk to everyone and enjoy your troubleshooting time. It may seem hard at the time, but it's fun when you're done. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. 